So this evening I'd like to speak about two qualities that we each have and we are developing. They're called the two guardians of the world. The two guardians of the world. And these are inner guardians, not some spirit guides from the outside, but really guides from the inside, from inside our own wisdom, our own compassion, our hearts. So all the practices that we've been doing here together have been helping us towards this goal, the goal of the holy life, which the Buddha called the unshakable deliverance of mind. Sometimes it's called the sure heart's release. So I wanted to uh, give you a view of this wider understanding that we've been um, developing in our own hearts here and where these two guardians of the world, these two wholesome qualities of mind stand within that, uh, those three areas, which are called the three pillars of the Dharma. All the practices we've been doing here during this time together are awareness or mindfulness practices. Uh, Manindra, one of our teachers, called them the three pillars of the Dharma. And that we need to pay attention to each area of these three pillars in order to live in an integrated, embodied way in the Dharma. So the first pillar is called dana, or giving, from a heart of generosity. So this is from an inner attitude of genuine compassion, genuine care for one another. This practice of giving our love, our energy, with those around us, is connecting to uh, our hearts, to other hearts of people around us in a way that helps us feel not only cared for ourselves, but helps others feel cared for and connected in this world. And the second pillar of the Dharma, after dana, which is giving, is called sila, S-I-L-A. And this is the practice of refraining from harming through our speech and behavior. And both of these two pillars of the Dharma have to do with our life in relationship to others, our life in this relative world of existence. This helps us to live in this world with an understanding that we're here to care for one another. And it's not just... You know, doing things just for ourselves alone, but for the benefit of all beings. The third pillar of the Dhamma is called Bhavana. And this is uh, the understanding, the deepening understanding of wisdom and how we free our hearts from greed, hatred, and delusion, from the two practices of concentration and wisdom, which we have been developing all week here together. So in understanding their importance and then practicing them in our lives gives us a better chance of experiencing some deep inner peace and the happiness that we're all aspiring towards. So it's important that we 
we uh, learn to respect all of these qualities and actually practice them with intention, which we are doing here together. So we learn how to navigate the challenging parts of our lives through the ups and downs of uh, our lives and taking in these teachings so that we learn how to navigate well and we're not only helping ourselves, but we're helping others too. So we learn what's possible, how to begin to be aware of inner obstacles, habit patterns, default settings, ways to transform those obstacles to onward leading experiences in our lives. And this is all going towards what is called the sure heart's release. So I wanted to encase this teaching that I'm going to give within this understanding, this greater understanding of the sure heart's release. So I'd like to read from the Majjhima number 30. It's a simile of the heartwood. So this is the Buddha talking to those around him. So this holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. So the Buddha talks about that this goal of the holy life is not for the attainment of virtue for its benefit, meaning to say that's not the end of our practice, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, meaning to say that's not the end of our practice either. But it is for this unshakable deliverance of mind, uh, the, the ability to understand deeply the nature of reality, and through that understanding to attain that deep peace that's beyond all words. So tonight, now that our thoughts are going towards being back in the world of family and community and work and study, uh, a lot of thoughts are coming up with all of us, um, even we as teachers, And we're wondering, how are we going to carry this out in the world? This practice of both generosity, dana, and sila are two ways that we can take this into the world. It's not uh, the time for us to think that we can simply go out into the world and do lifting, placing, stepping, you know, and um, just being sitting, you know, all the time. When I first started practicing, I would go home and, and put the same kind of similar schedule we have here on the board. I'd put it in my kitchen and hang it up, you know, and times of sitting in the morning and when I could sit in the afternoon, pro- probably in my car, you know, a break from work and then coming home, making dinner and then sitting a little bit then and my kids used to look at that and say, Mom, what happened to you? You know, <laughs> you can't do that. You know, you've, you've got to be with us. 
And so this is the way we, we really have to understand through the understanding of giving and uh, harmonizing with others in the world. So I'd like to talk about sila as a practice. It's a practice of refraining from harming through our speech and behavior. We take those vows every morning uh, to remember their importance in our lives. When we were all in the monastery or in monastic settings uh, to practice, every day we had to take those vows. It wasn't just, you know, once a week. Was every single day to remember to refrain from harm and also to do good in the world. Though each of those um, sila uh, uh, phrases are framed as a rule of abstinence, refraining from harm, it also includes a positive aspect, which is the virtue, virtue to be cultivated, primarily compassion. When we practice in those ways, what we're doing is having compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. So as I have been in the Dharma for quite a few years, um, I've really been inspired and and, um, really taken aback sometimes at the kind of purity of heart that people have around me. My uh, monastic elders and uh, peers um, that are friends of mine in life and friends that I have like uh, Joseph Goldstein, like my colleagues here and uh, Sharon Salzberg and others who have um, done great things in, in this world, just sharing the Dharma and sharing of themselves and actually just watching them as they navigate through life and all the difficulties and speaking with them on how to handle this and that and how they've handled this and that. What becomes more noticeable and even more beautiful is as we grow older, um, you know, and, and the body has its way of um, declining and it's, it's more difficult to um, find our balance sometimes. That's why you'll always see me holding the rail as I go down the steps. It's... Um, the, the beauty that, come, that comes out, the light that comes out of people's hearts is also uh, more beautiful even than the glow of what you know their, their face may be or their bodily expression may be. It's more like the glow from their, the purity of their hearts. That becomes more uh, noticeable. It's a kind of radiant inner wealth that one feels when one is around someone like that. So by this inner beauty, I mean the qualities of the wisdom mind, the qualities of a compassionate mind that clearly knows what leads to disharmony and refrains from that, also clearly knows what leads to harmony and goes towards that. That's very basic. You know, that doesn't take... um, you know, a, a scientist or um, a really, really a, a person that read so many books of the Dharma. A lot of people we meet along the way are just plain good people. You know, it, they don't even have to be in, in this particular tradition. There's um, a sense of that purity of heart, of 
not saying things that will harm and not doing things that will harm, but just always looking for the right words and and the right way to handle things. So, as we go along in our path, we're more confident and clear what know and know what leads to harmony, what leads to the opposite also. So tonight I'm going to put special attention on sila, that harmonious living through virtuous speech and virtuous conduct, those basic precepts that we take, the five precepts that we take every morning. In the ancient texts, the words of the Buddha and, all, and also the um, bhikkhunis and bhikkhus around the Buddha, there were two levels of life you paid a lot of attention to in harmonizing with life. It's living in harmony with one's own highest inner values. So um, that's real, that was really interesting to me when I first came to the Dharma because I really never sat down and thought about what are my highest inner values? What are my highest values in life? And um, it made me really deepen my um, search for that in my own heart. Living in harmony with one's highest inner values is one of the areas of harmonizing in our lives so that we're living in harmony with what we value. What is that? Have you ever thought about that? And the second uh, value is living in harmony with the highest values of the community, the society we live in. So that, that stands out more to us. So these two together are called the bliss of blamelessness, when we understand this living in harmony with our own highest values and the, and the values of those around us. This is called the bliss of blameless, blamelessness. When we have this kind of bliss, it leads to a deep sense of inner stability. When we feel this and we really connect with that within ourselves and connect with that which is of value to others in terms of virtuous qualities. So this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, the words of the Buddha. And what is the happiness of blamelessness? asked the Buddha. Here the householder, a noble disciple, is endowed with blameless bodily, verbal, and mental action. When one thinks, I am endowed with blameless bodily, verbal, and mental action, then one experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness or the bliss of blamelessness. This is said to be the cornerstone upon which this Eightfold Noble Path is built upon. Speech and conduct free from harm. All the Eightfold Noble Path factors are based on speech and conduct free from harm. So this kind of conduct, conduct when, you, when you see it in yourself or in others, it composes the mind, composes the mind and heart and makes it easily quiet. This has far-reaching consequences. So I just remembering when 
times that I've come to do practice, this kind of intensive practice we call. Um, and there's been difficulty at home. And, um, you know, I've gone through, like, difficulty with my growing children, especially when they were in their teenage years. And just basic difficulty that a householder has. And when I've gotten angry and not not said the right words or I've said words that caused hurt among my children or family members, I don't come with a heart that's settled. And it takes me a longer time to um, settle the heart when I'm in retreat. But when we are able to prepare before even coming to a retreat. It's possible to see and experiencing a more quiet mind. And sometimes it was like that, and I noticed the difference. And one of the big differences is that I paid more attention to harmony. Harmony within myself, harmony in connection with others. I was by no means perfect. You know, there were many times when um, I'm not in a good mood and they're fewer and fewer. (laughs) um, But there are times when I can hit the wall too when it's just too much. So as Manindra always says about himself when he was alive, my path is not yet finished. So um, I can say that many times too. And um, Steve will agree. (laughs) Um, so something from the Samyutta Nikaya I I like to bring forth those ancient um, words a bhikkhu approached the Buddha and asked let the blessed one teach me the Dhamma in brief and the blessed one answered well then bhikkhu cultivate the very starting point of wholesome states and what is the starting point of wholesome states? Virtue that is well purified and view that is straight. Then when your virtue is well purified and your view straight, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, you will then develop the four foundations or establishments of mindfulness. So usually, when the Buddha was invited to offer teachings to a community, he would begin with the teaching of dana or generosity, And then he would proceed on to sila, or harmonious living. And then then he taught meditation. It was gradual. The teachings were gradual always. So it was based upon that that cornerstone of dana, sila, which is a cornerstone of the Eightfold Noble Path. So it's interesting, you know, when, when the teachings came to the West... A lot of us were just more interested in developing the mind. So these, these first teachings weren't laid out as, as well. But now we're, we're doing our best to lay out how the Buddhist teachings really um, were meant to be uh, shared with others and um, in a way that's true to the, the way that um, leads to deep happiness and peace. It's more complete. So there are times for all of us when we just know we need to clean up our act. I mean, every time that I've gone through a retreat like this, 
there is one area, one specific area usually that I see, wow, I need to pay attention to that a little more. You know, it, it might be just a tiny area in, in the level, uh, level of speech or, um, you know, action in the world. Maybe I, I could be a little more sharing uh, of my time and um, a, a little more um, generous in that way with people. Or maybe I could be much more careful with my speech with certain people. And so just um, observing how it is, and that might be for you too, how it might be for you as you've been here. You've seen ways of habit patterns that really are, are hurtful to ourselves when we experience them. So how much more to others also. So we get a more refined sensitivity to our speech and our action because we know ourselves more. We know the habit patterns, the default settings of our mind, and these are good things to know. This is a way of, as Steve uh, said the other night, of we need to reframe when, we're, when, they're, when the hindrances are coming up to, um, let's see, recognize them, relax around them, and then also refrain from acting them out, you know, if they're harmful. Refrain from acting them out. And then reframe, meaning to say, to frame them differently. Like, these aren't bad things, that because we're knowing them. It's good to know them rather than not to know them. I love what uh, one of our uh, elder colleagues says, is it's up and out, you know, when they come up. To be known, then they can do their thing and carry, you know, carry themselves out. But if we don't know them, as Steve was saying repeatedly the other evening, they become stronger because they are covered in um, in delusion and/or ignorance. So it's really helpful to be able to actually say them, to see them, to name them. If you weren't coming to a, um, a what we call a check-in or um, yeah check-in with the teachers and talking about your defilements, the teacher would think something's wrong. You know, you're not telling the whole truth about what's going on. But and when you would talk about defilements, they would be happy that you're saying something that's oh okay now it can really work on something. And, and see the truth of how things are. So, in my very first month-long practice, I have a story just about that. Uh, we were um, reporting to the teacher in small groups, just like we we offered here that possibility. And so, I joined. The, I was put in some group, and I went to see the teacher. And with this group. This was Upandita, my first month-long uh, retreat. And um, he was asking everybody, what are you experiencing? The, the first practice was about being with the rise and fall of the abdomen, just as we presented to you. And so people around me were saying, oh, I can be with the rise and fall very well. The noting is rising, falling, or in-out, and then can notice everything very, very clearly. 
it doesn't go away or it hardly goes away. And I thought, I am in the wrong group because everything's coming, you know. And I knew already about the, the five hindrances. So I thought, wow, there's a multiple hindrance attack almost every single sitting. So I just, I, I just couldn't... Um, I just had to report truthfully. So I reported whatever there was, sleepiness, restlessness, uh, wanting it to be another way, wanting to go home, things like that, just saying it like it is. And so um, this is what happened, that that evening or, or later in the day during the Dharma talk, he gave this Dharma talk, and it was about truthfulness. And he said, you have to be completely truthful about what's going on in your practice. Because um, if you're not truthful, then I don't know, we don't know how to respond to you. And we'll be responding in the wrong way. It won't help you. But mostly it's because you won't be telling the truth. And this, this next line really got to me. How can you realize the truth if you can't speak the truth? And I, boo, I thought, yeah. So from that time on, I was so precisely truthful that if you look at my little notebooks from, I'm just remembering this, I have these little little notebooks that I would give a, um, we were allowed uh, 10 minutes to give our report. So we had five minutes to say it, and then there was five minutes of uh, response. And, you know, it took a little longer to come in and do our bows and do our bows and leave. So all in all, it might be 15. And so you you would see in my reporting that I would say, and I'm not asking you of this. This is ridiculous what I did. But it was like I would report, I, I sat for this many hours and this many minutes. I walked for this many hours and this many minutes. And I, I was really really, really truthful about what I wrote down. You know, I would take the last sitting before I would make my report, and I would remember something about one sitting of the rising, one sitting of the falling, and I would just put that down so I could repeat it truthfully. And um, that that really took me a long ways in seeing the truth of how things are. And then... um, you know, one time, I would take a long, long time, by the way, to answer, because I wanted to be really um, complete, you know, comprehensive, but it would take so long that he never answered. He never answered. <laughs> so the, the, the bell would just ring, ding, and then I'd say, okay. So, and I, so I was here. It, one, of the, one of the times I was here, I think this, the second time I practiced with him, I was in this hall. And then uh, I asked Sharon, because Sharon was, would be sitting by the side, Sharon and Joseph, and they might be listening to our reports. And Sharon said, well, the time you have is 10 minutes, and you take it all up. <laughs> so <laughs> you really have to be short and to the point. That's what he wants, short. You know that short and to the point really helped me because I didn't go on and on and on about I did this or did that. It helped me in my thinking also because I would be short and to the point. 
in my thinking. So there's a lot of ways that this training really helped, even though it was really strict. We're not asking that of all of you, you know. But so just want to say what, what worked for me at the time. So it's said that the causes of these two guardian um, uh, two guardians of the world is careful attention, careful attention to what's going on. So that means mindfulness. So mindfulness has to come up in our practice and it can really bring with it the two guardians of the world. So this is the shining light and glow of inner beauty that is this, um, these two guardians of the world. The first one is called Hiri, H-I-R-I. And they're translate, this is translated as, in a bad way, it's not very well translated into English, as moral shame. Shame in the English language is usually about self-aversion or some kind of toxic shame. That's not an adequate description. You can't use just a few words. In the Dhamma de- uh, definition, it's not associated with self-aversion at all. In fact, this kind of shame is a wholesome attitude of mind. It's one of the 25 beautiful qualities of the mind, this hiri. So I want to read, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, what this is. Um, This is a personal sense of conscience, an internal reference, an inner reference that our words or behavior don't feel right. This hiri is rooted in self-respect. It induces us to shrink away from wrongdoing out of a feeling of integrity, out of a feeling of respect for ourselves that we do that. It's a healthy form of sensitivity, an intuitive sense that this, which I'm going to say or act out, this is hurtful to myself. So we might be saying, oh, this is not a good thing to say or do because it shatters our sense of confidence and integrity and we can't live with ourselves, you know. It's what causes a lot of restlessness in the mind. Uh, We have a friend um, who had also been a beautiful Dharma teacher, Jack Engler, also a great um, uh, psychologist and... um, part of Harvard University at one point. And he was deeply involved in the Dharma and actually had Deepama as one of his um, great teachers. He said that in order to let go into the truth of not-self, you have to have a healthy sense of self. And this is a way of... A healthy sense of self is a person who really embodies sila, That is a healthy sense of self on a relative level. Someone who embodies sila. So what happens is we shrink away from doing or saying something that might cause harm to ourselves. Um, We might have the intention to speak and when it's accompanied by ill will or something or blame, we say, oh, don't go there. You know, we, we want to hold back those words that will make us not feel good inside of ourselves. So remembering a time when I was with a neighbor and uh, we had just moved into the neighborhood and we had a, a 
plot of, an area of land, and this neighbor had been living there for a long time, and that land hadn't been habitated for a while. That part of the land connected with uh, their land, and we were taking down on the on our part of the land. We were taking down all the um, very nice um, tall bushes that I guess kept their land a little bit protected. And this person did not like it at all. So came, wanted to have um, a conversation with me, came to the house, and there was a, a lot of harsh words and blame. And um, I was thinking to myself, wow, I'd better not say anything now because I can see what's going on in my own mind and I'll, I'll just harm myself. I, I won't be in a good way and also harm her. And I remembered the words of Gandhi, to speak only if it improves upon the silence. So, no, what I was going to say does not improve upon, you know, that lull in the conversation. So I just said, I don't think I'm going to speak now because I'm not feeling clear. I'm just feeling kind of ruffled inside. And um, she said back to me, that's right, you're not clear. And I said... Mm. Just, oh, wow, I just had to put what I've been calling that Dharma duct tape on my mouth and said, okay, well, it, actually it turned out okay <laughs> in the long run. So what happens is we shrink away from those words. That's what it feels like inside. It's like It actually feels like aversion, but it's actually wholesome. This is renunciation. It's a wholesome state of mind. We, we shrink away of saying something that's harmful to our own integrity. It's having respect for oneself. It's preserving an honorable standard for oneself. So here is respect for one's own dignity. And we, we do that so that we know that if we... Uh, do the opposite, then there'll be a lot of rumbling and a kind of regret, remorse. Remorse is good, but it still rumbles up our hearts. You know, it's not clear. It's not settled. I read a simile of how Hiri is somatically felt when it's experienced. Um, and this is in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. These are the, the words and thoughts of Buddha Gosha. Um, who wrote that Visuddhimagga. It's like we are just about to grab an iron rod. And then we see that that iron rod is smeared with excrement. And what happens to us is we shrink away in disgust. It's not in disgust about ourselves. It's in disgust for the defilements, for the kilesas that are coming up. So this is a good thing. A very good thing. It's not like bad to feel this. Uh, one time when I went to practice in, in uh, Burma, this was the first time I went to practice. I had come from a situation where I'd been in a, a close. Have I had a close friend, and we had a falling out, and I felt blamed and. Um, for doing something that I felt was honorable. And I felt a lot of that being blamed, and I felt resentment against that person, also blamed back in, in my own mind and heart. And 
just thinking about what I could have said and kind of redoing the whole last conversation uh, over and over again. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. And I went to report to Seda Upandita, and he said, um, I said to him, what, what happens is this comes up over and over again, especially in the walking practice, and I feel really disgusted you know, about it. And it, it just felt like awful to feel that disgust. And really, in the long run, it was about like my mind saying, don't go there, don't go there. So anyway, he said to me, when you feel or sense these, these things, um, his words were, withdraw. Withdraw your energy. And his, his, um, his um, that was from the translator, by the way. I don't, in Burmese, I don't know what it actually meant. But the translator said, withdraw. And he went kind of back. And I realized it was like kind of taking a step back from what was going to be said. It was like shrinking away, like that going out to hold a a rod, an iron rod filled with excrement. And so don't feed it, don't hold it, don't go there. So I had asked him, is this wholesome to shrink away from it? And then that evening or the next day, he gave a talk of Hiriyotapa. And it so um, impressed me, that talk. So kind of that, that talk is a transmission from, that I'm offering here for you because it was so powerful for me to really pay attention. You know, we think everything's about sitting and walking and just being an intensive practice, but it's much more about being in our lives and you know, being aware of those qualities that come up in our lives, much more important in ways. So what he confirmed uh, was that hiri is respect for oneself. Uh, It's seeing the danger to oneself, to one's own karmic stream. You know, because when we don't recognize what's going on, what's coming up, or we don't want to recognize it, or we avoid it out of like just clamping down on it. It's first to realize that it's there, and the second part is to refrain from acting it out. So it's not so much pushing it away, but it's more like not taking it on, not identifying with it. So it's a state of mind of shrinking away. Here he is one of the two inner guardians of the world. It's said to be a cause for the development of inner peace. This is really important in our lives, paying attention to this um, inner guardian and developing it. So the proximate cause for Hiri to arise is this self-respect, this moral shame, and this understanding of the laws of cause and effect. You know, how it's going to affect our own karmic stream. So this is from a reading from one of, uh, from our ancestor teachers, Mahasi Seyadao, and also handed down to uh, Seyadao Upandita. Hiri or shame is a feeling of disgust towards the kilesas, towards the defilements. As you try to be mindful, you will find there are gaps 
during which the hindrances pounce on you and make you their victim. Returning to your senses, so to speak, you feel a kind of abhorrence or shame. It is a shrinking away from the hindrances. This is called Hiri, one of the two guardians of the world. So whereas Hiri has its, um, it's intended to have an internal orientation, the second guardian of the world, which is Otapa, has, a, has an external orientation. It's a sense of social conscience, of um, a healthy form of fear of the consequences of our actions or words that come from greed, hatred, and delusion that are in connection with the world, with those around us in our relative reality. It's some kind of dread of what will be the result of this. So the proximate cause for otapa to arise is respect for others, whereas the proximate cause for hiri to arise is respect for ourselves. So, for example, if we break the harmony within our communal standards, Otapa is dreading the difficulties that can come from that. So we we might fear losing or being blamed uh, by those we trust, especially the wise and the virtuous whom we treasure. You know, a lot of times, uh, when I can remember rightly, I I would think, ooh, what would would my teachers think of this? Uh, And... uh, just an example of that, my, one of my granddaughters, uh, my eldest granddaughter, um, when, my, when she gets in trouble, you know, by, by her mom sees her doing this or that, which is my daughter seeing her do this or that, she, she doesn't fear so much what, you know, what it could be if, um, say, she, she just thinks that she can take something off the shelf of a, of a store and just take it out of the store, you know. The, she had to learn that. No, you got to pay for it, you know. <laughs> you just can't take it away. But my granddaughter was more fearful of what I would think of her than of <laughs> social conscience. So my, my daughter would say, I'm going to tell Nana on you. And my granddaughter would say, oh, no, Mom, don't do that, <laughs> you know. So... Um, yeah, that's a kind of attitude that we have. You know, well, we don't always have it for our mothers or grandmothers, but um, I would have it for my own, the people I would, I would um, treasure in my life. So, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi now. Um, Otapa does not stop at this level it makes us sensitive that our actions and words be in harmony with the law of karma. So that goes back to ourselves now. Action and the fruit of action, which is the law of karma, which reigns invisibly behind the entire entirety of sentient existence. So, um, you know, I don't know how much you understand or believe in the laws of cause and effect, but like Manindra says, whether you believe it or not, it's true. He would always say that, like, end of discussion. Uh, But of course, he'd give ways 
to understand that. So practicing the precepts is um, both of these together, coming together, wholesome states of mind, um, practicing uh, the precepts. One way we can look at it is not just for you know understanding ways that we can refrain from harm towards ourselves and our others, but on the, on the beauty side of it, um, the beautiful side of it is it gives the gift of fearlessness to others because people know that we care and respect them, that they can feel safe in our company, and um, that they know that we respect ourselves too, that we care for that in ourselves. So it's supported, these two are supported by mindful awareness. And because we're mindfully aware of and attentive to our inner world and our habits and what that might cause in the outer world, this is a kind of wisdom. This is one of the relative wisdoms that is born out of that. And here we're sitting, you know, and and doing this deep practice and to, to go towards the wisdom of understanding in a very deep way the three characteristics that um, was spoken about the other evening by Tara, I think, and uh, beautiful. And we understand that that's true. But really, the first step we should take in the Dharma is to develop this wisdom on the relative level of existence and understand what we are forming within our own hearts that will help us as we, as we go deeper on our path and why it's a, such a help to the society that we live in. So we can reflect on situations of our own life when you know that when you weren't paying attention to Hiri and Otapa, how... Um, it caused harm, you know, to others. And there is a saying. It was one of these in one of these self-help books that you can do or say something in an instant that can give you a heartache for a lifetime, because there was no impulse control. No impulse control. It's it's a lot around us these days, and we can see it within us too when we sit here to do the practice. There's no hiriotapa that's really deep within us. So an example of this is um, that gives me a heartache for a lifetime is in in my mom's elder years. um, My mom used to come and visit us. And um, uh, she'd stay with um, Steve and I for about one or two months of the year to give a respite to my sister who took care of my mother and my mom's uh, pure Filipina, and um, she her her great love was was to make Filipino foods for for us, you know. So she'd want us to take her shopping, and so she just loved to push that basket all in and out of the you know of the aisles and see what she needed and what we needed, and she just wanted us to. Um, Relax, and she would do all the cooking and doing the dishes, and of course, you know, go for it, Mom. So um, one time I was in a hurry, and I, I was rushing her through, and I was just so 
impatient, you know, with she's just taking her time. And so I just, Mom, we really have to go. So I was pushing the cart a little bit faster, and I, my mom's was not quite five feet, you know. And she took quicker steps than I could and got to the checkout counter, checked out really quickly, you know, I grabbed the bags and just rushed out, and my mom followed. She sat in the car, and um, she started sniffling. And I turned to her, and my mom was crying. And I said, Mom, okay, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, in her broken English, she said, I'm shedding a tear. I'm shedding a tear. And I said, I'm sorry, Mom. You know, and even as I say that now, it's like, wow, how could I disrespect my mother like that? And so I did a lot of disrespecting in my younger life, by the way. But um, not that bad, but, you know, I had soap in my mouth and things like that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think about that and just how it's so important to be careful so important to reflect on those things. It's interesting to note that both Hiri and Otapa are listed in the Buddhist psychology, which is called the Abhidhamma, one of the major texts of the Buddha's teachings, that it's two of the 25 beautiful, wholesome mental factors. I think um, there are 52 mental factors, right? 52 mental factors, and 25 of them are beautiful, wholesome mental factors. And Hiri Otapa are two of them. The first one is faith, which is a a confidence. I spoke a little bit about, and then mindfulness. Uh, Faith is first. Mindfulness is second. The second beautiful quality, sati. The third is Hiri. That is a third beautiful quality of the mind. And the fourth is otapa. The fifth is non-attachment. I'll just name a few, not all. The sixth is goodwill, which means kindness, which is metta, really. And the seventh is equanimity. And there's more, including the other um, four Brahma-viharas, which are sympathetic joy, and compassion, also wisdom and right effort. So anyway, those are almost half of them right there. But it was interesting to, when I looked them up today, you know, I knew they were uh, two of the beautiful qualities of heart, how close they were to the top of the list after faith and after mindfulness. So even though one may feel a heightened sense of alarm, because sometimes we feel like, ooh, you know, you feel this hiri or otapa, and it's a heightened sense of alarm. It's just mindfulness coming together with a heightened sensitivity to harming oneself, one's karmic stream, harming another. So they're both beautiful qualities, and just really know that. Some, it was really helpful when that was pointed out to me by Seodao Upandita, that that is really a wholesome state of mind, not harmful state of mind. A friend of mine um, told me that 
once she had um, uh, a betrayal and hurt from one of her siblings and she wanted to strike out and to lash out with blame and, and really hurtful words. But she decided to wait until she could rely on some inner wisdom and maybe some compassion too. When she felt more certain that she would not hurt herself by lashing out or hurt another, and then, you know, what needed to be worked out in the family could be worked out well. So she did that. She told me that she waited and she did that. She didn't, she wasn't talking about Hiri Otapa. She was just saying, I think I, I, I better just do that. She knew that intuitively. So she had respect and dignity for her own heart, which is Hiri, and she had respect for her sibling, so not hurting another. So this is both. You Then you have both things together. Hiri and Otapa, they come together. They can come together. So what she did was she freed herself from remorse, from regret that would happen in the future, that would make her mind feel more ruffled because of how she might have lashed out and then how that might have caused something back. And then it's just a really big, bigger problem at that point. So again from the Buddha, I don't want these to be only my words, but the Buddha said, virtuous conduct has non-remorse as its aim and non-remorse as its benefit. So sila, this is a wonderful form of renunciation. And uh, what, we, what we are renouncing is greed or hatred or delusion or combination of all of them at many different levels. When we refrain from speech or behavior, that emanates from that place. So it's also at the same time the cultivation of compassion cultivation of metta for another, generosity. A lot of the paramis are, come out of this refraining, come out from this renunciation of not acting out. When there's a letting go of something that's unwise, that's ca- causing harm, and there's the, uh, letting go into something more like wisdom and compassion. So these wholesome qualities make real fertile soil for deep wisdom to grow. If you don't have this basis, then it's very difficult. It's much more difficult for wisdom to grow. Wisdom doesn't just grow from reading all the the suttas and the texts and, you know, those great understandings that these great beings come to us. We have to include sila this understanding of hiri otapa in in our practice. And if you haven't taken that seriously, this is a good time to reflect upon that and see what does that mean for you in your lives as you go out into the world? What is the area? You know, even just taking one area and working on that. So in those moments when there is a strength and possibility of experiencing Um, a deep goodness in ourselves, it's a moment of inviolable protection when we feel that uh, we've got the Dhamma in here, you know, in our hearts. 
and we, we know what it takes to walk this path. We, we just have some sense of, okay, I can do this. You know, it may be hard, and I may not get through it perfectly well, but I know I've, I've got somewhat of what it takes to walk this path. So these, these protections are like inner mentors for us. If we have this, uh, we can... Um, it's not like we need a teacher every moment of the way. Uh, some of you have asked about teachers, and the way we all did it is, um, of course, we have teachers that are close to us and major teachers who have helped us all along the way, Kalyanamitas, spiritual friends. But usually we would go to the retreats wherever they were. That's where it's not like the old times when the teacher was lived right in the valley or right on the hill that we lived on, you know, like it might happen in Burma or Tibet or China in the old times. But it's um, this is the world of today, you know. Now we can go on Zoom, actually. Um, so we can live in this inner field of protection, and we have great greater trust for ourselves. So, um, yeah, it's mostly about that. It's, it's a big time, big time about that in our lives. So, it, you know, how often do we get to come to a retreat? And how much are we in our daily lives when we can practice in our daily lives? There's a lot more time that we can practice in our daily lives. And it's not sitting and walking how many hours of the day, although that's good, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that um, tomorrow sometime, talking about taking the practice home. But uh, it, it's not about that, you know, walking back and forth or walking from, you know, the car to the front door and doing stepping, stepping, stepping or things that I've done in my own home. But it's majorly about sila, and how we can purify that and, and make that um, a big part of the Dharma of our lives. So here's a, a beautiful story that I haven't told yet. I've known about this for a long time. And this is from a teaching that comes um, from the ancient Hawaiian tradition um, about life. Uh, it's called the bowl of light, the bowl of light. It comes from the understanding that we're all born with a heart that is like a bowl of light. And to me, that means the potential, you know, potential for us as human beings. We have that bowl of light, and um, this is our potential in life to really experience that, the the beauty of our hearts, the purity of our hearts. And through life's experiences, through all the traumas, through all the difficulties and um, hardships of our lives, this life and maybe even past lives, if we believe in that, although like Manindra says, believe it or not, it's true, (laughs) Um, but you know, we're also going to see for ourselves, right? So through all of life's experiences, we start putting stones in that bowl of light. 
and eventually we have so many stones in that bowl of light that are marked with all these different, you know, ways of um, greed, hatred, delusion. So many stones that that bowl of light is covered with stones and we don't see the stones anymore. But with our practice, what we're doing is we're recognizing what those are, what we've covered that light up with, so to say. It's not, by the way, in in our tradition, it's not some eternal light. (laughs) It's, uh, it might represent the light of wisdom and compassion. That's what I would say it represents, the light of wisdom and compassion in our tradition. That in our tradition, we start seeing those qualities that are covering up that uh, capacity for us to realize that beautiful light of wisdom and compassion that we have the capacity for. And bit by bit, you know, the stones are taken out of that bowl, and one stone might be envy, and another stone might be blame, and another stone might be the inability to forgive, and another stone might be hatred and attachment, and on and on and on. And as we take those stones out, that light of wisdom and that compassion really shines. And we actually begin to experience the potential for us as human beings, that human potential to experience that purification of all those places in our hearts that are, have been hard to bear. So we begin to develop that. We begin to release, to let go, let go, let go, let go, release, release, release. And through the years and through our time as human beings, we find that it's, it becomes easier for us. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's a gradual path. Um, dana, sila, bhavana, generosity, uh, being um, having a good heart, harmonizing, and also um, developing wisdom and compassion within through our practices of concentration and wisdom. So I'd like to end with this. Um, <clears throat> this is from Mahasi Sayadaw since we're, we're practicing uh, through his generosity and his compassion, we have this practice. <clears throat> so you should protect your morality with great care, just as you would protect your very life. You should not be negligent about your behavior, thinking that you can correct it later. You might die at any time, Morality is especially important for those who are practicing meditation. They should even honor and respect it more than their lives and keep it fully purified. If you purposely and properly protect and purify your morality, then you will have a clear conscience every time you reflect about morality during your meditation practice. And you will then experience joy, delight, tranquility, happiness, and unconditional peace. So may that be so.
for all of us. So let's sit for a moment. for your kind attention. So now about uh, 30 minutes for walking and be back here for sitting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.